I'm Emily Rowney. And I'm Alicia Holland. This is Bill Camp, the voice of Forensic Files 2 on HLN, and you're listening to Murder in the Rain. In our anniversary episode that aired last month, we got to discussing how we most often cover solved cases. Usually these cases have far more documentation, which makes it a whole lot easier to put a podcast episode together. However, we're super passionate about unsolved cases. We discussed early on when we opted to create a podcast that our goal was to contribute. Whether it's spreading the word so that a name stays with the public longer, or perhaps a tip gets called in, or someone can learn something to help keep their family safe, we just want to be actively contributing. And of course, the dream is always to help bring someone home, or you know, solve a case. So because of that, we feel very lucky that we can highlight these types of cases on our Coin AM Extra segment, True Crime Tuesdays, even if there isn't a whole lot of info on them. Alicia, you mentioned maybe putting together episodes where we can take a few of our True Crime Tuesday segments that are bite-sized and create a feature-length podcast episode. Yeah, we've been lucky enough to cover some of these cases, not only on True Crime Tuesday, but on like a Patreon mini episode, or I know some of them we've done full-on episodes on. And so, yeah, kind of doing a, a, a hodgepodge, if you will, of these cases that do have less information, but still deserve to be on a platform like this. I agree. And it's a fantastic idea. We can take them, put them together in an episode because we know we have a further reach with our actual episodes. So that is what I want to do today. This episode is going to feature two cases of missing children, missing children under incredibly suspicious circumstances. According to the FBI, in 2020, there were 365,348 National Crime Information Center entries for missing children. According to the Polly Kloss Foundation, nearly 90% of missing children have simply misunderstood directions, miscommunicated their plans, are lost, or have run away. 9% are kidnapped by a family member in a custody dispute. 3% are abducted by non-family members, usually during the commission of a crime such as a robbery or a sexual assault. The kidnapper is often someone the child knows. Only about 100 children a year, that's a fraction of 1%, are kidnapped in a stereotypical stranger abduction, the kind we hear about on the news. And about half of those children do come home. So that less than 1% is the one we're most often worried about, right? Stranger danger, the horror stories from the 80s and 90s. That's why we have Amber Alerts. Amber Alerts were created in 1996 after the tragic abduction and murder of nine-year-old Amber Hagerman in Arlington, Texas. Amber was out riding her bike when she was abducted by a stranger. A neighbor witnessed the ordeal and called 911. Days after the search for Amber, her body was discovered in a creek, naked and sexually assaulted. After her murder, the public was in an uproar. They wanted stronger laws against sex offenders, and this ultimately helped to create the Amber Alert system. While inspired by Amber Hagerman, Amber is an acronym for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. The introduction of this system has helped by returning over a thousand children to their families. What I really didn't know about Amber Alerts until recently was that they're intended for children 17 years or younger who are known to be abducted. This means it's not used for runaway children or abandoned children or missing children in suspicious circumstances, but a true confirmed abduction. 
I think today's cases will garner some thought about that. What I mean is we're so focused on that less than 1%, but what are we actually doing about the rest of the cases? I can't say I've heard of a program as effective as the Amber Alert system for children that fall under different categories, children missing under mysterious circumstances, children like I'm going to talk about today. Richard Lee Haynes Jr., who went by the name Cody, was born on April 16, 1993, to his parents Richard Lee Haynes Sr., known as Rick, and Lisa Donnie. The couple had four other children, all daughters, and were living in Colorado. Within a few years of having Cody, the couple decided to separate. Cody and his siblings remained in the care of his mother until 1999, when Cody was six years old. That year, there were allegations that Lisa had abused the children. She was arrested and jailed for this, which led to losing custody of her children. Cody and his sisters then moved in with their father. Within a few months of Rick Haynes taking custody of the kids, he moved the family to Kittitas, Washington. Kittitas is a very small town located in Kittitas County, which is basically smack dab in the middle of Washington state. The town has under 2,000 people, and the vast majority of the population in this county live in Ellensburg, roughly 15 minutes away. Ellensburg has over 10 times the population, Central Washington University, and not to mention restaurants and a Target store. Rick, a tow truck driver for DM Towing, had been cohabitating with a woman named Marla Harding. She worked as a social worker. Both of them worked in Ellensburg. Most refer to Marla as the children's stepmother, even though the couple was not married. The family settled into a two-bedroom apartment above a business in downtown Kittitas, the four girls in one room, and Cody and his parents sharing the master bedroom. In 2001, two years after having custody of the kids, a call was made to CPS by the principal of Cody's school. In the report, they alleged that Rick and Marla were physically and mentally abusive to the kids and were also neglecting them. A year later, another report was made stating similar reasons. Neither of these reports resulted in a full investigation, and Rick never lost custody. Sometime between 2003 and 2004, Marla was fired from her job as a social worker in Ellensburg. This was noted as, quote, misconduct, which meant she lost all benefits and did not receive unemployment, thus leaving the family fully reliant on Rick's tow truck earnings. At 6.30 p.m. on September 12, 2004, Rick Haynes reported his son Cody as missing. While police opened an investigation, no Amber Alert was issued, likely due to the fact that Rick offered the suggestion that Cody ran away, probably to his mother in Florida. So police begin investigating the disappearance of Cody Haynes, and here's what we learned from their interviews with Rick and Marla. At around 8 p.m. the night of September 11, 2004, Cody got into a disagreement with his stepmother. She asked him to do the dishes and put the food away, some of his chores, but he refuses. So as punishment, she makes him sit at the kitchen table for several hours. Sometime around midnight, he's told to go to his room and not come out. And this is the last time his sisters ever see him. His father, Rick, gets home from work around 12 a.m. and does not check on Cody. Instead, he has him continue to stay in his room and leaves the house again around 2.30 a.m. He says it's because he needs to pick up some car parts. A neighbor claims that they were woken up in the early morning because of the Haynes van. It was left running and sitting outside of their shed. This noise woke up the baby, which ultimately woke them up, so they looked out the window and confirmed what they were hearing. 
When Cody's sisters woke up the next day, there were chairs outside of the master bedroom, you know, the one that Cody shared with his father and stepmother, and there was a note taped to it that said to stay out and that Cody was grounded. This is probably a good place to let you know that it's well documented that there was no door on the master bedroom. So it's just an empty door frame with kitchen chairs in front of it, kind of like in a half circle. Oh, that is, I don't like any of that. I know. The girls go on about their day watching movies and ignoring the master bedroom. Their father, Rick, arrives home at 4 p.m. that day. Now, as a reminder, he's been gone looking for car parts for 14 hours. After he arrives home, he and Marla check on Cody for the first time in roughly 18 hours. This is when Rick discovers that Cody's bed appears to have Cody laying in it, but it's just his toys and stuffed animals shaped to make it look like he's asleep. Also missing is a bag and some of his personal belongings. This is when Rick calls 911 to report Cody missing, two hours after he arrived home. Police begin looking through the property and locate Cody's bag full of his clothes near the shed where he keeps his bike. His bike is still in the shed, so if Cody did take off, he would have been on foot. This was enough to send up the red flags for police. They begin to question Rick's story. Police ask to interview Cody's sisters, but Rick and Marla refuse. They do learn enough from the interviews with Rick and Marla to make some progress. The couple sat for an interview together, but eventually lawyered up when police suggested conducting separate interviews with each of them. The interview allowed police to glean enough info from them to get Cody's sisters taken from the home and placed in foster care. They learned that Cody was left alone for 18 hours in a room. Their usual discipline rules were that when you were being punished, you couldn't use the bathroom or eat or drink. Once this information was documented, the police chief was able to get the girls out of the apartment a little over a week after Cody's disappearance due to, quote, inappropriate discipline. I'd be curious how that was being portrayed to the police. If they had any kind of like, oh, we realize now that we're saying this out loud that that's not cool or if they're like, this is what we do. I thought the same thing. And I wondered if they were like being as honest as possible, you know, when it's like stick to the truth as much as you can, whether or not they're hiding something. Maybe they were just being totally honest to try to like. Yeah. Buy some lead way or something. I'd be curious. Anytime with people like that where it's once you're in that room, you know, when does it click that that wasn't good? It makes you think that maybe they realized they were oversharing. They lawyered up because they're like, crap, I might be digging a hole here. Yeah. Once the girls were removed from the custody of Rick Haynes, police moved forward with plans to interview them. Initially, they were hesitant to talk to them, but once they were no longer living with their father, they began to tell the story and what police learned supported their suspicions of Rick Haynes' involvement. According to the eldest sister, the night before Cody, quote, disappeared, he had been severely beaten by his father in the kitchen, and during that beating, he was hit in the head. One sister attempted to check on Cody because he was crying, and their parents told her to stay out of it. The girls continue to hear Cody crying, and then they hear a loud thud, after which Cody's cries stop. Pretty much immediately after this, Rick leaves to go pick up his car parts. Now, Rick did do that drive that night, about 250 miles. He left Kittitas and drove through Topanish and then on to Yakima. At some point, he was in Ritzville, where his vehicle breaks down and he has to call a friend to assist him. The real kicker, though? Rick bought zero car parts that day. One of the most suspicious parts of this case, and I mean all of it is, but this one really is, 
Police get a warrant to search the Haynes van in early 2005 after they spoke to the sister, but they find out two days after Cody had disappeared, Rick had sold his van for parts. There's a lot of questions around this because the police impound initially took the wrong vehicle. They first went and picked up the Suburban rather than the van, Uh. which is what Rick was driving in. Now, despite the mix-up, police were able to get most of the van parts back as evidence. But, you know, it was parts by then, and it had been months by then. It was too late. A few weeks after Cody's disappearance and the sale of their vehicle, Rick and Marla get married. I mean, what a perfect time, right? So they travel to Yakima, they get married, and many are suspicious of this. They feel like it's to protect each other from giving information to the police. But spousal privilege only protects you against testifying to things that happened while you were married. So anything prior to that is fully up for grabs. That doesn't mean that they weren't doing it under the hope that it would, though. It sounds like with this group of doofers, yeah, they probably assumed so. Right. And unless you're well-versed in uh, legalese or have been through it before, you wouldn't, I don't think you would know that. Because what we learn from the media is, yeah, if you're married, you can't tattle on each other or you don't have to. What, during all of this, are they even acting like grieving parents or concerned parents? Oh, we'll get to that. Oh, okay, good. Now, if you didn't already think these two were guilty, let me give you some major deja vu. It comes out around this time that the kids are homeschooled. For those of you who listened to my most recent episode, What Happens in the House, the Angela McAnulty case, this is going to sound really familiar. Abusive parents, CPS involvement, homeschooling, you see it, right? So the media catches wind of Rick Haynes, father of five, didn't participate in the community search for his son. I often say it's hard to judge a parent's reaction to a child being missing, but this one I have a really hard time with. To be honest, I don't think I've ever heard of a situation where a child goes missing and the parents don't help in some way, right? They're either putting up flyers or, you know, setting up a home base for the searchers or creating a phone tip line. Yeah, I think the judgment comes frequently from the emotional response thinking you'd be bawling your eyes out or that parent seems too stoic, you know, so everyone kind of puts... Oh, I'd be I wouldn't be able to talk. I would look like a statue or I'd be hysterical, bawling my eyes out. But, yeah, I don't think no matter what the emotional response is, you wouldn't expect a parent looking for a child to just sit back and be like, all right, guys, you take care of it. I don't really care. Yeah, I agree. His argument for this, though, (laughs) is that. They homeschool their girls so they couldn't participate. And I'm sorry, wouldn't you let your kids maybe take a few days from school if their brother was missing? Yeah, if you're the ones in charge, you're basically the principal. You could say school's closed for today. Yeah, it's really hard not to be judgy on this one. Plus they were, you know, alleged abusers and other things, so... Okay, so after police have all of this information and the testimony of one of his sisters saying that their parents were physically abusive with Cody the night he goes missing, police get a warrant to search the house and, as I mentioned, take the vehicle. This is in February, five months after Cody's disappearance. Even though in court time this doesn't seem like a long time, that's a lot of time. You know, enough to make sure your car is dismantled and to clean up the house. As for the house, the warrant is specific in saying that it's seeking blood evidence in the kitchen where Cody's sister claims he was severely beaten and indicated that there would have been a lot of blood. We're finally making progress now in the investigation, right? Well, 
police are in the apartment and they learn that the floor had been replaced after Cody's disappearance. This was not something that the landlord was aware of or even approved. During the search, a, quote, significant discovery was made, but police did not give any additional information on it since it was active and an open investigation. Continued interviews with the sisters did uncover that all of the children were beaten, many times with objects, one even referencing a chair. This was inflicted by both their father and their stepmother. One of the more disturbing allegations was that sometimes they were beaten when they had a bucket or litter box between their feet. And this was because they were hit so hard that they didn't want to have an accident and dirty the floor. All of the sisters said that Cody, the youngest, got the worst of the abuse. Marla and Rick separated pretty quickly after they were married in 2004. At the beginning of 2005, Rick tried to get a restraining order against the Kittitas police chief. I imagine they were looking at him pretty heavily, which is probably intimidating, especially in a small town where the police chief probably has little else to investigate outside of their <laughs> biggest unsolved crime. That is, I mean, we talk frequently about the balls, balls on some yeah. of these people. The How dare you investigate me? <laughs> to not put in any effort to find your own kid and then to be annoyed at the cop that's looking for your kid and to actually file paperwork. Like, who do you think you are? I know. I mean, good on the police chief. This was his full time job until about October of 2005 when the FBI took the case over. Rick remarried in the years after his separation from Marla. He continued to claim that he had nothing to do with the disappearance. And outside of one outburst at a vigil for Cody, one where he claimed that Cody wasn't dead and that they shouldn't be having a vigil for a kid who isn't dead, he had really zero participation in the search for his son. Even more telling of the kind of person he is, he never visited any of his daughters while they were in foster care, even though he could have because he was never arrested. In 2013, Cody's biological mother hired a private investigator to continue to work on Cody's case. This gave a little bit of a nudge on the investigation. In the same year, a special team of cadaver dogs were employed to search for his remains. They located several bones, but it all turned out to be animal bones. Sadly, no new discoveries were added to the case file, even with an investigator and search dogs. In 2019, Rick Haynes passed away at the age of 57. On findagrave.com, you can see a picture of his headstone and as well as two really juicy comments. One is calling him out as a murderer and a monster. And another says that they very much regretted that his son's burial location wasn't tortured out of him before he died. Wow. Yeah, that is a shame that he died before information could be found. And also, I like that he had adjectives for the husband, but not for father. Oh, like, no, there's a father. Oh, yeah. Just right. father. I didn't know if the beloved. I know I sat and I looked at that for a while. I don't because it's beloved, period, father, period, brother. So uh, I wondered if the beloved is supposed to be beloved well, forever, beloved for father, everything. beloved brother. Also, how I wonder how that went when dating that he got remarried. Like at Especially what point in a small do you town? Go? I don't know if he left and I right. don't know if the woman he married was from his town. But like, don't worry about that cop following us. They just think I killed my kid. Well, some women Which might I be did. into that. And I'm oh, guessing God, she's true. the one that picked out this headstone. Ugh. And that's where we're at. Nothing new is learned. No blood evidence. Nothing. There have been two unconfirmed sightings of Cody, but even the majority of his family suspects that he's dead. 
Both the police and the FBI have labeled this case as a likely homicide. The family is still highly active in the case to this day, which means you can help. His cousin has started a change.org petition to, quote, demand answers for Richard Lee Haynes Jr. A link can be found in our show notes if you'd like to add your name to the over 7,000 signatures. You know, I bet that's why he died fairly young. They say the stress, the stress. of keeping a secret can really have a physical toll on you. And even though it sounds like he didn't care, that still was his son. But I'll, I will say this. Two of them knew. His wife had to have known, even yeah. if she didn't do it or vice versa. They knew. And to have two people keep a secret is pretty unlikely. Is she still alive? Yes. She, I believe, moved from the area, though. Mm. Well, let's call her up. Cody Haynes has been gone for over 16 years, and he would be 28 years old today. He is Caucasian and has brown hair and blue eyes and a round birthmark on the inside of his right thigh. If you have any information on this case, you're asked to contact the Kittitas Police at 509-925-8534. So one of the things in this case that I found pretty weird is that the neighbors often saw the kids without shoes in the winter, no shoes, no coats. So they would talk about it and they would tell people, yet CPS still didn't do anything. There's not a lot you could do with that, I would think, because if I called CPS right now and said my neighbors were doing that, that's so easily dismissible as, but that's oh, you know, you can't put coats on kids. They're always running out. They're always, you know, like you can't. But say pairing based that off with that. the principal calling themselves to say this kid is beaten, he's he's that's neglected. a different story. But that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like multiple. There were mm. at least two callers to CPS plus the neighbors talking to police. Right. I mean, by then it was probably too late. But that's just kind of scary that in a tiny town where everyone knows each other, mm -hmm. which brings me to another interesting point. The police chief, because it's a small town, he said he knew every child. He didn't know Cody. And the neighbors also said they saw the girls outside all the time, but not Cody. So it's likely he was kept inside a lot of the time, hidden mm. from the town. Well, and in other cases you've covered where the children are abused or murdered by a parent or family member, so often it is that one kid is the target. Yes. So even in this case where all the kids he claim to have been abused, worst. he was that kid that got the extra... There was this bad one abuse that it's sad, like, yeah, there was one sad note from the sister where she said, oh, the stepmom took all four girls to the mall and went shopping and they made Cody or they didn't. She made Cody stay in the car for hours while right. they were at the mall and he had to lay on the floorboard to stay hidden. That's what and, I mean. He was maybe like a secret kid. He's homeschooled. Yeah. He's the youngest. He's the only boy. Like so many things that could have potentially been seen as them as reasons why or yeah. excuses that yeah he could have been this hidden secret child it's incredibly sad and he's yeah. just the most adorable thing we'll be back with the case of sky metawala after this short break mm -hmm. 
One of the benefits of the pandemic and the quarantine we survived is that a lot of people discovered their own creative outlet. True. I myself even started a new Golden Girls podcast, Always Be My Sisters. It's been a fun and easy way for me to be creative and share mine and Josh's goofiness with the world. And for every person who did start a podcast, there are probably five others who thought about it and never made the jump. Our advice? Do it. Everyone has a point of view and there is literally a niche for every interest. The hardest part of getting started is finding the right host. Well, not in our case. No, not that kind of host. A podcast platform. That's why we were so excited when we found Red Circle. Whether you are brand new and looking to start your show or you're ready to move on from your stale old podcast host, Red Circle is the place to be. The features are rad. When we were new to the platform, we took advantage of the built-in promo swap feature, which allows you to connect with other podcasts to help promote each other's show. They also make it so easy to add an advertisement, upload episodes, or read analytics, even for a non-tech person like myself. Not to mention, they make getting advertisers so much easier. We struggled for over a year on our old podcast host platform and didn't win a single ad. Two weeks with Red Circle and we had advertisers. If you are interested in making the plunge to podcast host software that is easy to use, attractive, and constantly improving, check out our show notes for a link to sign up for Red Circle. You can also find a link on our promo codes tab at murderintherain.com. In 1997, 15-year-old Russian-born and Ukrainian-raised Julia Biryukova met 21-year-old Solomon Metawala. Solomon, who was born in Pakistan, was well into a successful life here in the U.S. managing his own convenience store. The two met at a service station in Bellevue, Washington, and Solomon promptly asked Julia to accompany him to a party, and that quickly turned into the pair dating. Once Julia had graduated high school and earned her U.S. citizenship, Solomon asked her to move in with him. She agreed and soon after began working with him in his store. By 2003, Solomon proposed to Julia and the two got married. In 2007, the couple had their first child, Miley. After the birth of Miley, Julia began to show signs of obsessive-compulsive disorder, where she would clean for large portions of the day. She also struggled with depression. Solomon started having to leave work early to check on them more and more, even having to feed his daughter since Julia struggled with germs and didn't want to keep food in the house due to fears of cross-contamination. Julia's escalating mental health issues resulted in multiple medications being prescribed to manage her illness. When she became pregnant with their second child, she took herself off of her medication even though her doctor said it was recommended and safe and urged her to stay on them. Miley was two years old when Sky Elijah Metawala was born on September 6, 2009. Unfortunately, while the family was now complete, they were not a perfect happy little family. Julia continued to show signs of an escalating mental illness, which put a major stressor on the couple's marriage. To make matters worse, the couple was cited for reckless endangerment of a child. On a very cold day, 27 degrees Fahrenheit, they decided to leave Skye, two months old at the time, in their car while they went shopping at Target. The couple agreed to take parenting classes, participate in community service, and spend a year on probation without issue. And once they fulfill these obligations, the case against them for child endangerment would be dropped. How does one go about leaving their baby in a freezing car? I know. And it sounds like they were fairly nonchalant about it. I don't know if it's like a cultural thing. 
of of just and they come from different cultures obviously oh if she's from russia she's like this isn't cold yeah or it's just you know we're only going to be in there for a few minutes like I, i feel like a lot of people do that and it isn't something that they just teach you in birthing class like, right so if you're not aware of how children work i guess i could see it but yeah i just i had a friend's dog in my car the other day and i went to go pick up my chinese food i know and I it was hot out Henry. i'm more and worried I was he's like, gonna get stolen oh my god i and i stood there staring at the car being like making sure like, no one okay, sees it's to 65 think- degrees yes. out i think you'll be fine for five minutes but yes. it's the, it's these stories that like what if i lock my keys in the car right or something um but and I, I think and that's not the same as people that forget their bait, like all of that where it's accidental and horrific. I can't even think about but that. But to actively choose st- to. Yeah. And without here's the thing, sick, they have a new yeah, baby. Not thinking about it. Maybe he was not a good sleeper and he had finally fallen because they did say he was asleep. Oh. So maybe they just didn't want to wake him. Like I I have to think just young, dumb parents yeah. being like, ah, it's not hot. Yeah. So that's not bad. Ugh. By 2010, Julia confided in Solomon that she was having dreams that she was hurting their children. She was still struggling to manage all of her issues, so she was ultimately committed to mental health facilities three separate times. Not long after her third stay at a hospital, Solomon filed for divorce. This was in June of 2010. Things grew out of control quickly. Both parents started to campaign against each other for custody. Julia alleged that Solomon had anger issues, controlled her, and was emotionally and physically abusive. Solomon shared his concerns that she wasn't able to appropriately care for the children without his help because she couldn't even care for herself at that point. However, she was evaluated by a psychiatrist and deemed fit to care for her children despite her health history. At this point, the court took Solomon's ability to have contact with his children away as CPS launched an investigation into the allegations against him made by Julia. While he had his custody temporarily taken away, Julia was granted full custody. Solomon couldn't even have visitation. It took nearly a year, but eventually the allegations were deemed unfounded and Solomon was no longer prohibited from seeing his children. However, his wife and him were still battling through a divorce. In the fall of 2011, Julia and Solomon agreed that the best course of action was to go into mediation to discuss the custody of their children. An agreement was made after nearly 13 hours in a mediation session on November 4th. Julia would have custody, but Solomon would have visitation. Both parents agreed to this, but two days later, tragedy would take place. Two-year-old Skye would go missing. To say this disappearance was suspicious would be an understatement. The day of the disappearance, according to Julia, went a little like this. On November 6, 2011, Skye appeared sick. Julia packed him and his four-year-old sister into her brother's car, a 1998 Acura, to drive Skye to Overlake Medical Center in Bellevue, Washington, around 8 a.m. During the drive, the car ran out of gas. Choosing not to wait for help on the side of the road, Julia leaves Skye, two years old, in his car seat in the car, with the doors unlocked. She and her daughter walk a mile to a gas station to get help. Rather than get gas and return to her parked vehicle, she calls a friend who picks her up and takes her back to the car. When she returns, Skye is gone. Julia called police on her friend's phone just before 10 a.m. that day. When they arrived shortly thereafter, they noted that Julia didn't have a gas can with her, which defeats the purpose of having gone to the gas station. She also didn't have a cell phone, a purse, or money. 
Right away, police begin to investigate Julia as her story seems very off. In addition to there not being a gas can, police realized that the car was not actually out of gas. There were at least two gallons of gas in the car. It also appeared to be fully working, no mechanical issues whatsoever. Like any case of a missing child, the police started interviewing the family. Everyone was willing to speak with them, everyone except Julia. While she allowed their search of her vehicle and her apartment, she refused to speak to them directly and insisted that all communication go through a lawyer. She also declined to take part in a polygraph test. Now, in her defense, if you have a lawyer, they're likely going to tell you do not take the polygraph test because it's unreliable. But considering that every single person in the family was willing to have an open conversation to help find Sky. This just made her look even more suspicious. Just like Cody's dad. where It's like, why? how do you not do every single thing in your power to get that child back? About a week after Skye's disappearance, police set up a roadblock near the area that Julia claimed she saw the child last. This was when he was in the back seat of their broken down car on the 2400 block of 112th Avenue. For five hours, cars were stopped and interviewed to see if anyone had information. Over a dozen tips were gathered just by doing that. Several witnesses claimed that they saw the car between the hours of 8 a.m. and 10 a.m., which was roughly the time it was broken down on the side of the road, or broken down, fingers in the air, quoting. But everyone said they saw no child, that it was just an empty car. And the way an Acura, I guess, is positioned, you would see the the car seat in the back seat and be able oh. to see them through the window. Mm-hmm. And they said, nope, there was no one in there. And that you would believe because I know if I was driving down a little high, highway or a look. little road and I look and if I saw just a child and I saw no one else stop. around... You stop and call for help. Absolutely. And since they got a wide spread of these witnesses between the hours of 8 and 10, they're leading them to think, I don't think there was a child outside. Police later learned that it was a regular habit of Julia's to leave her four-year-old and her two-year-old unsupervised for short periods of time. In fact, while she had full custody of her children and went into mediation with her husband to sort out custody for 13 hours, she had left them alone in the apartment. More shockingly, they also learned that Julia is the only person who had physically seen Skye for roughly two weeks prior to the disappearance, meaning that he could have disappeared any time between October 23rd and November 6th. This is some real Casey Anthony BS. While Skye's case was investigated, Miley was put into temporary foster care until about December of that year. During this time, Julia was not able to have any visitation with her. And this wasn't just because she was being investigated, but because she was making really disturbing comments about killing herself in front of her child. By 2012, Solomon and Julia finally divorced, and Solomon was officially granted sole custody of not only their daughter, but of Skye, who was now missing for four months. And did he get custody because of the continued behavior of Julia? With leaving the kids and now Sky. Yeah, I think it's everything. I mean, mainly she was leaving the kids and they were building this case against her in this potential investigation. While she was not arrested, she could still have custody. Right. But because of the comments and the the mental issues, yeah. they really thought, no, it's not a good idea. So they granted him that full custody. And by then he was fully dismissed of any wrongdoing. They they believed Julia was making it up. Oh, okay. After their divorce, Julia went on to date a married man named Alan Morgan. 
This relationship was volatile, and there were claims of several incidents of domestic violence. At one point, Allen was arrested for this and consequently earned more jail time after he violated his no-contact order. Even from jail, he harassed her with dozens of phone calls. They did end up getting married, and I'm pretty sure they're married to this day. Cool. This wasn't the first time that Allen had issues with the law. Before he and Julia got together, he had already accumulated several CPS calls against him for cruelty toward a child. This was in his previous relationship. He also had charges of domestic violence, drugs, battery and assault, and even violence against the police. Oh, please tell me they had so many babies. By 2015, Julia had a child with Alan. There we go. And from the moment it was born, CPS worked to get custody of the baby. Clearly, they were unfit parents. Alan was eventually arrested, and neither parent was able to get custody, and the child is now being raised by Julia's mother. Solomon and Miley live a happy life together, and while she doesn't have real memories of her brother, Solomon regularly speaks about Skye and how he hopes he can see him someday. As the case stands now, there are, of course, theories, but they all revolve around Skye's mother, Julia. Theory one is that she gave her son to family in the Ukraine and that he's still alive somewhere outside of the U.S. Theory two is that she killed Skye and cleaned up after it using her OCD cleaning skills so no one would ever know. We know four-year-old Miley was questioned and she claims Skye was in the car that day, but most feel like her mother pressured her to say that. And while Julia does have ties to the Ukraine, police do not believe that Sky left Washington, and they don't believe he was even in that car that day. Overall, the search for Sky has incurred over 14,000 hours of searching, millions of dollars spent, and 2,500 tips followed up on. Many people tried to find out what happened to little Sky, spending hours upon hours helping in the investigation, but we still don't know. But we do know one person who does, and that's Julia Beryakova, a.k.a. Julia Morgan. Sky Matawala has been gone for over nine years and would be 11 years old today. He has black hair and brown eyes. He's biracial, having both Ukrainian and Pakistani descent. If you have any information on what happened to Sky, please contact the Bellevue Police Department at 425-577-5656. Okay, so I have to tell you one creepy thing that I did not put in the script. But two weeks prior to Sky's disappearance, there was an episode of SVU titled Missing Pieces. Now, this is about a woman who leaves her baby in the car and it ends up getting stolen with the baby inside. She calls police and eventually they figure out she was making it all up. The baby actually died from SIDS and she was covering it up. So, of course, this fuels the fire that Julia likely killed Sky at some point in that two week span and then was just making this all up to have some sort of abduction story yeah i mean that's possible the idea of her sending him to the ukraine seems totally outlandish that was so soon after 9 11 you can't just send a baby that age on a plane by themselves so you would have had so much documentation right. of who went they could and have passports figured that out if that did happen yeah like, okay i feel like that would have been with... debunked mm -hmm. immediately so that i put no faith in that theory um yeah, it's just there is there is the thought that maybe she and this crossed my mind, maybe she gave him to human traffickers. Now, hear me out on this. 
I wonder, did the police check her bank statements? Because if there was a spike in funds, that would kind of mm. allude to her selling him off. But I really do think she killed him. Yeah, that also seems complicated. Like, because then you get into stereotypical stuff of like, oh, she's an immigrant. Oh, she's from Russia. So she probably has ties. Yeah. Like, you automatically, everyone in Russia knows a sex trafficker. I just went through every storyline it could yeah. possibly be to like. So it's pro like, and okay, it. so you have someone who has talked about concerns about hurting their child mm -hmm. and has been neglectful to their child and shown concerning behaviors i think it's occam's razor you know yeah. it's like the easiest but answer where is, is right he there. then and that's what's hard it's like yeah is he buried is he in the water now they did find a toddler shoe not far from where she claims he was in the car uh, but it turned out not to be his they were able to track down i think who it belonged to but is the um, dad still involved as far as trying to keep his name out there or yes. searching he does articles like every once in a while and i have reached out to him and i'm hopeful that maybe he'll want to chat with us yeah. um because he does do interviews once in a while i wouldn't i did go on his facebook and i it's some of it's private um he's very religious i don't know if he was religious prior mm. to this or if this kind of leaned into it, it after but yeah. he seems like a decent guy that you know tried to stick it out with someone with mental health issues and it wore on him yeah and then this happened let's assume she did kill Sky. Right. This is very reminiscent of the Help Me episode where it's like, okay, filicide, which is the, you know, a parent murdering their child ages one to 17. Right. It falls into these different categories. So there's this idea of altruistic, which is either you think your kid's in a better place or you have suicidal ideation. You want to kill yourself and your kid because you That's don't want like, them going on. That makes on. me think of like the the moms with the bathtub. What's her name in Texas yep. where she was like, mm -hmm. no, it's bad and e there's evil in the world. I'm saving our children. Well, that's a different type, which is um, like a psychotic break. Oh, yeah. So um, but it, she kind of falls in both categories, yeah. I'd say, because, yes, you and that's one thought I had is, is this just a psychotic break where you kill your child and there was no reason for it? Right. Or you thought, you know, your voices were telling you that this kid was bad, which was in the case you're talking about. Um, but then there's also the concept of that punishing your ex that you brought up earlier. Right. Was this because she was so pissed she was going to have to give her ex visitation? But it's also like, why would days. she be? Because she seemed, from what you said, it sounded like she had potential to be maybe overwhelmed by motherhood, yeah. especially two young kids. Which is another type, so too. Why, <laughs> wouldn't, so, yeah, exactly. So wouldn't you be more interested in the custody sharing so yeah. that you and don't then, have that. And then what about the daughter? Burned. Was she more bonded with the daughter? Is right. that why she was fine? Um, why spend all that time coaching your daughter to say the son was in Again, the car? Just like the last case, there's always that one kid that for whatever reason is the target and abuse. But it sounds pretty flat out that she had two weeks. Who knows, Who knows what, what she, she did in that time? I mean, two weeks to dispose. I'm sorry to talk like this. Two weeks to dispose of a very small body. Yeah. That wouldn't be that difficult. Yeah, you have all that time, all that time. And no one's looking. And that's and the, the husband isn't seeing them. So she doesn't have yeah. to worry about that kind of timeline. And like she's just going through life. And that Rick guy from the first story, he just went through life. How many people do we cross paths with? You know, they say, oh, you passed ser seven serial killers in your life or whatever. But how many people are like suspects or a person of interest or these cases like if I were a homicide detective, these cases where it's like just out of reach, where you know 
You know the answer. You know they're on to them. Yeah, but they cannot but prove it. But you can't do you anything. That that would make me lose it. On that note, I want to leave you with a couple other facts to mull over. According to the Journal of Forensic Science, filicide happens about 500 times per year. That's five times more often than a child gets abducted by a stranger and 10 times more likely than a child gets abducted by a stranger and murdered by a stranger. Nearly 73% of filicide cases involve children six years or younger. I mentioned in the beginning of this episode that I'm unsure of effective programs for children missing under mysterious circumstances, and it seems more often than not in these types of cases, we seem to be able to have valid arguments against CPS, where calls were made and nothing seems to happen, or we're reliant on a doctor evaluation to help gauge the level of risk a child is at with their own parent. Unfortunately, there are far too many of these cases, and you can tell that from just our podcast catalog alone, not to mention the hundreds of similar cases we have yet to cover. There are organizations who help, and I know I've mentioned it before, but I urge you, if you can, to join us in making a donation to the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. They were created in 1984 and since its introduction have received 5 million calls and have helped recover over 300,000 children. If you can't make a donation, another way you can help is by sharing the donation link with others. A link to donate will be found in our show notes. Was that too choppy or was it okay? No, that was good. Okay, because I was struggling, struggling, struggling. Isn't that the saddest? It's It's like we know. We know who did it, but we can't just arrest people. I, I mean, it just really makes you think not just parent to child, but how many cases and how many people are just that one piece of evidence away from being in jail for murdering someone. Yeah. And right now they're just living their lives. You hear, I mean, look at Golden State Killer. He was out for forever just living his life. It's so really hard to, to know that these people get away with it and have an entire life of memories and things to look forward to after they killed their child. Mm-hmm. And that's, again... Why we do this, why we do True Crime Tuesday, because it is that one thing. Maybe one person knows one thing about either of these cases and calls it in. And, and then even it's like, if that's not the done. case, maybe they recognize this behavior and they're one CPS call away yeah. from saving these kids' lives. Yeah. Polisk. They're the Russian police. <laughs> Polisk. That are here to help. Hello, we are here to solve your case. We got vodka. We are the Polisk. <laughs> involvement of Rick. <laughs> <laughs> After the birth of oh, jewelry. <laughs> I can't ever write that word. I know. Every time I work, it. I'm like, oh my God. I had miswritten Julia as Julie, so that's why oh, I thought God. of it just now. Julia. To be fair, I have not practiced this portion because I was in that goddamn meeting for so long (laughs) on a Sunday. God's day. The couple agreed to take parenting cap. Oh, my God. (laughs) Are you saying Uh, parenting? You know what she sounds like? like I know. (laughs) (laughs) No, you guys will be shocked. I did that one time and the look on your faces. (laughs) Remember when I almost did that whole mini without a mistake? I still to this day I dream about it. (laughs) 
Murder in the Rain is produced and edited by Josh McCullough. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney and Alicia Holland. Artwork by Jamie Costa. Music by Kai Pfeiffer at kyfifer.com. Check out our website, murderintherain.com, for additional information on all cases, a fun interactive map, and be sure to subscribe so you can receive our newsletter. Check out the Mad Props page for coupon codes from some of our sponsors. We love your reviews and seeing them on all streaming platforms, especially iTunes. And check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And suck my balls. (laughs) Please put that in. (laughs) 